Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle, live in studio, with our guest, Alexandra Enyart. An orchestra and opera conductor, Alex serves as music director for Thompson Street Opera Company, where she chartered Faulty, where she chartered Faulty Systems, an annual program in which activists and artists come together to present on underrepresented communities or ideas through music, speech, poetry, dance, and other mediums. As a transgender conductor, she has a specific passion for gender equality and diverse gender representation in music. But first, San Francisco Opera and Lyric have announced their 2019-2020 seasons. We'll read between the lines and talk about what's to look forward to and what might be missing from each company's list. Plus, in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. And, of course, you can call us on air and have your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687, or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And without further ado, Oliver Camacho, are you there? I was... Thinking like uh, we were talking last week, this is a little inside baseball for our audience. Mm. That's that, a sports joke. That we should <laughs> have Weston, you know, uh, run the show more often so that George can be hands free and can participate more. Well, it looks like George is not only hands free, he's person free. <laughs> he is not here. He took the opportunity <laughs> to ditch us today. I don't know what he's doing. It's cold outside. I I forgive him. I have Matt Cummings, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. But you. Cold is a bit of an understatement for this next week that we've got in store. <laughs> I think we're going more towards uh, extra extraterrestrial planets, you know, uh, one of the ones you're not supposed to be able to live on, not Class M. That's a Star Trek joke for all you fans out there. And uh, Alex, of course, welcome to the show, our new guest host just for tonight, special guest host, I should say. Let's go ahead and get started with some opera. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle-belling And everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year 
That's right. It's the most wonderful time of year, that being the time when all the opera companies get together in the cold and they talk about uh, what they're going to bring for us next season. And uh, the big ones uh, that just sort of popped up on our radar, of course, the first one, Lyric Opera of Chicago, the home team, as it were. They just announced their 2019-2020 seasons. Let's take a closer look at the, what the highlights and omissions of those seasons are. So, Matt Cummings, do you have any opinions on what's coming up this uh, this season? I have to say, the thing that I am most looking forward to at Lyric Opera is Queen of Spades. Oh, yeah, because yeah. no one does this opera. It is, it, it's pretty out there. Uh, it's, if, if you're going to do a Tchaikovsky work, usually it's Eugene Onegin. But mm. the Queen of Spades is so much more dramatic and over the top, and it has a ghost in it. And those are all things that I really am in favor of in terms of opera. <laughs> You're pro-ghost. I'm is definitely pro-ghost. How about you, Alex? Are there any pro-ghost uh, things for your list? Well, not ghost yet, but I love Dead Man Walking. <laughs> I think that's an excellent, excellent choice. Jack Hagee's Dead Man Walking. And, you know, I'm so excited. As far as, far as I'm aware, that's a Hagee premiere uh, for the lyric. For, for Chicago, I yeah, believe, for, as, a, yes. as a whole. COT is going to swoop in and do Moby Dick this spring. Yeah. And, yeah. and Northwestern did Dead Men Walking. Oh, okay. So this is the first sort of. This is the first sort of professional production, I believe, in Chicago. At least that's what it's bill, billing it, uh, itself as. Which is so exciting. I mean, getting that new work in there. And I know that they've also talked about using Dead Men Walking as a. Uh, is a starting point for a multi-year, a multi-season project to bring in new works. And mm. I think that that mission is really significant. And the other new work, uh, or not new work, but the other multi-year projects they're looking at is bringing in a whole bunch of early Verdi works. Oh, yeah. That, that, that was something that really interested me when I was sort of looking at uh, that plan. I think it was the first I'd heard of it was in uh, one of these uh, uh, press releases. Um, and uh, the, the idea of going to early Verdi... I think it's interesting because obviously everyone hears, you know, uh, Aida, a lot of the later stuff, um, they kind of know like the back of their hand, but Verdi has a much longer career, uh, even going back, even before Nabucco, he did, a, um, um, a, what was the one he did before Nabucco? Uh, the okay, comedy Oberto that was a failure. Yeah, Un giorno di Regno, Nabucco yeah, was both his of those. third. Yeah. That's your music history. For the <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Uh, but I knew I could count on you. And, and, and next year, the, the, the early middle variety that they're doing is, is Louisa Miller, which I would say is a little mm. bit, it's, it's a little bit more middle than early, you know, like yeah. some of the, some of the bel canto and a lot of the rah-rah Italian patriotism from the really early stuff, like Nabucco has sure. kind of fallen away and it's a little bit closer to the, what you would expect from like. Uh, Rigoletto or Traviata, uh, not so much Trovatore. But, but it is a little bit outside of the standard rep. Absolutely. And I think that's sort of an, a good strategy for a lot of opera companies to take, especially ones that are a little bit more concerned about um, losing audience, like, uh, like, uh, like the lyric is. Um, where you introduce uh, uh, an opera that maybe they don't know, like the back of their hand, like like Aida or Rigoletto, but something by the same composer to sort of kind of ease them into it, and one that'll give kind of the same sort of moments that they're expecting sure. from from that composer, and then you know not leading up to a disappointment like you might get if they were doing uh, Alzira or <laughs> some right. some of those Verdi ones that really never get done. How about you, Oliver? Any highlights or lowlights from the lyric season? Well, we already mentioned Dead Men Walking, which uh, maybe we could talk about again. But um, there are they are doing this chamber opera thing now at the end of the yeah. season. Yeah. And this year they're doing an opera by a composer who's known for music theater, Carolina Change, or The Fun Room. 
a fun home. Fun home. Yeah. <laughs> I would the escape room. I would, very I would, different. I would, yeah. I would not underestimate Jeanine Tesori, though. Like, it's a composer who can write things that are as different as Thoroughly Modern Millie and Fun Home, yeah. which, yeah. even though they're both musicals, are about eight, 180 degrees apart in terms of yeah. their tone, in terms of their style, in terms of their topic. Uh, she's really versatile, and I believe that she is part of the a similar initiative that the Met is doing in terms of commissioning new works. I, I I think her name was one that came up as one of their their collaborators in coming years. So it's not the first time that 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 she's been talked about as as being as joining the opera world as well. Sure, I'm very so, excited about that. When I so feel the like the show is called Blue, right? And once again, uh, it's by Janine Tesori with a libretto by Tazewell or Tazewell Thompson. Uh, uh, yeah, and they uh, are co-producing this production with Glimmerglass and Washington National Opera, and um, they are venturing out to the Shakespeare Theater. Yeah, uh, I thought that was an interesting which is a new choice. venue for lyric. Um, I'm very curious about how that will work. Um, they have been, you know, previously working in smaller theaters like the Athenaeum Theater and mm-hmm. the Harris Theater, and Shakespeare is actually s- quite small. Uh, but has a lot more capability, like stage mm-hmm. capability, and they also like are known for their theater in the round or like you know the jet the jet stage. What do you call that? You know, like the thrust. Thrust. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thrust. <laughs> I oh, you word. forget. Thrust, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know exactly how which which setup they're going to use because Chicago Shakespeare has a lot of different options um, and spaces over there, so that that hasn't been delineated yet. But it's definitely an interesting venue for them. And the uh, piece is centered on an African-American family. Mm-hmm. And I think it's based on like a some Ta-Nehisi Coates or Baldwin. I forget what. Or they're adapting those stories. I'm not sure. But, you know. Well, I think part of the importance in that also is that they're using these shows to tell other stories also. And tell stories that we don't necessarily see in main stage. Last year they did Fellow Travelers. Um, hitting on LGBT themes. So I think that they really have a lot going on with these projects that reach out and, and are branching out in that way. Um, uh, the same, you know, I don't didn't see an, any announcement for Empower, but I assume that they'll do it again where they do the, um, where they work with high school students all year long to put on their own show at the end of the year. And I think that that's another thing that Lyric is really doing, trying to diversify their season and, and trying to help bring new composers into the mix and, and, you know, it's such a hard thing to have that that tradition and the expectation for what lyric is. But I think that right. they are making strides to to be more inclusive and to share more stories and to hear new things. I I don't disagree with you, and I'm very happy that things are these things are happening. That said, they're still relegated to the not not the main season. Yeah, I would love to see one of one of sort of. I mean, I think they could have pulled off like fellow travelers on the full stage. I think it would have been amazing. Um, I, I I loved that opera last year. Um, I'm sure you, all our listeners can go back and listen to the episode where uh, where we all reviewed it. Um, but it. it, it it really holds up on a much larger scale, and I would yeah. love to see these odd ones. I mean, I do give them bonus points for having Jake Heggie, obviously living composer. Yeah, um, but, but this opera is tried and true. And right, yeah. and people love it. And he, he's probably the the safest sort of yeah. new guy out there, as it were. Um, and, and speaking of uh, safe. Uh, <laughs> safe guys. There's a couple that I think are a little. They're doing Madame Butterfly. Yeah, again. Ten performances yeah. of Butterfly. So God. like, I think the Queen of Spades has five performances, and you know the. Good to Demerung has three. 
three, and they're, they build up this entire ring cycle mm-hmm. for four years, and they only have three performances of Greta Demerol. I, that's that's plus, nuts. Plus the rings. Well, and I suppose the they are doing races. the full ring. Yeah, so. that's... Yeah. They only have so many hours in a season, Wesley. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, uh, well, yeah. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, if you are not a Wagner person, you might find the, this uh, uh, this upcoming season a little spare for you. Um, but well, I mean, we all, we all knew that was going to happen. Yeah. With the, in a ring cycle year, I mean, th- there really are only so many dollars that can go towards <laughs> towards a season. And I I actually there were more. It, more productions this coming season that were not the ring than I expected. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. I, I, I do. I, I am a little disappointed that they're doing, you know, Butterfly. I, I'm a little. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just so we're not doing retractions next week. It's a total of five performances: two standalones and three with the ring cycle. So it's five in total. But but that okay. But that does go into my my general criticism with the cu- the last couple seasons. Definitely this current season. And, and this upcoming season at Lyric, which is that they are not going very far to look when these operas were last done. Mm-hmm. Butterfly's been, sure. this is the third production of Butterfly in 11 years. Yeah. And even, it, it, that, and that, there have been other Puccini operas that were done in that span of, at, as well. I, I don't think we need three butterflies in a decade for a house that only <laughs> does eight productions a year. Right, I'm sure Barbara Seville and Don Giovanni are also Don, fall on that. The, the, those, mm-hmm. those have also been... Been th- those productions premiered since I became a lyric attender in the last decade. Sure. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, the good thing about Barbara Seville is we'll get to hear Marianne Krabasa again, who was amazing. Sure. And the great thing about Don Giovanni is that, is that our friend Rachel Willisorson will be here singing the role of Donna Anna, and she's incredible in that. And I'm going to be her best gay when she comes to town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cast in general, I'm I'm really impressed with. I feel like that that is where they're taking. That 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 is really a, where a lot of their attention is going in terms of mm-hmm. taking a step up. It, it's a good mix of like old favorites and new territory, like Sandra Radvanovsky yeah. and Queen of Spades. And a certain six-syllable last name Russian soprano doesn't appear this season, which is great for me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the and there's a lot of up, young, young up-and-comers who have proven themselves in in recent lyric productions who are getting chances to do a little bit flasher things like Marion Krabasa. Yeah. Well, just quickly before we go to the next opera company, we're gonna we're gonna preview, Sandra Radvanovsky singing the three queens, but not all three queens at the end cycle. <laughs> it's not the queen cycle. It's just in one concert, semi staged. It's not clear how that's gonna go. I think Mariela Devia does that, and Edita Grubarova does that. Probably the final scenes from each opera. I'm I'm guessing. That's about an hour and a half of music. So yeah, with some intermissions. Yeah, can we hear a little bit of song? Yeah, let's just hear a little bit of that.
And of course, another big sort of announcement at San Francisco. They also released their season. Um, I think probably the, uh, well, what are some, let's go with highlights and lowlights again. Matt, what have you got for us for that one? I, I mean, there's really one, there's one or two offers in San Francisco that, that jump out. Uh, I I think Billy Budd is I I mean I'm yeah. a, I'm a Britain fanboy. Me too. So any Britain is good is is a good thing, and that is a challenging opera. It's a huge cast, and it's cast really well. So I think that could be a really exciting production. But it, it's definitely not the headliner in terms of their exciting exciting plans. What are their exciting exciting plans, Oliver? I don't know. What are you talking about? <laughs> You're not talking about brothers. I, I think what Matt me. what Matt is referring to is probably the. Uh, evolution of Steve Jobs, oh, okay. as I like to pronounce it, because uh, it's got the little parentheses. <laughs> um, that's uh, Mason Bates, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, that one's kind of an odd one, because it's one of those ones that I feel like got a lot of hype, but I listened to a lot of it, and I I can't quite get totally behind Bates as an opera composer. If you, if you haven't heard of Bates, um, he's, uh, he's very much influenced by sort of uh, DJ, electronica, uh, uh, dance music, um, and it's, it, it doesn't always translate well to an acoustic medium, I find. Uh, however, Revolution of Steve Jobs has had uh, a lot of good press, and I think it's uh, um, certainly an interesting one for them to try, um, and, and I think that's probably where the majority of their advertising dollars as far as the new operas is probably going to go. And I think it's really significant to bring electronics onto the stage like that, really. I, I think electronic music is is such a big part of music of today and music sure. that's happening right now that to beginning Mason Bates in there and Mark Campbell's libretto, I'm sure. You Friend know, of the show, Mark Campbell. <laughs> yeah, for the show, sorry. Yeah, so for the show with Mark Campbell's libretto on top of that, I, I would be very interested in seeing that production myself. So I'm crazy about their Partenope, and I might yeah. just go out there to see that. Uh, they will have Louise Alder as Partenope, who, if you haven't heard of her, go to the YouTubes and look her up. She is a drop-dead gorgeous woman, and she sings like a goddess. There's a video of her, I think, doing a concert version of Popea, and it's just so, so good. And then my boyfriend, Jakob Josef Orlinski, <laughs> Friend of the show. Uh, is going to be singing the role of um, Armindo, and Franco Fogioli, uh, a countertenor, if you haven't heard this guy, um, you should look him up as well. He sounds like Cecilia Bartoli. Uh, I was going to say he's the male Cecilia yeah, Bartoli. Yeah, he sings higher yeah. than Cecilia Bartoli, actually. <laughs> so when you hear Bartoli and Fagioli in duets, it's like, what has happened? Like, your ears are so confused. Uh, so three amazing singers in that cast. Actually, Daniel and Mack is in the cast, and mm. Alex Strader and Hadley Adams. Uh, so it's all around, to me, one of the most exciting casts for a broke opera. San Francisco usually does those things very well. And I'll say that John Chest, who is, um, is Chicago-trained, he went to the Roosevelt Chicago Conservatory, what do they call that, I think, for performing the arts? Chicago College of Performing Arts? Yeah. yeah. He'll be singing the title role of Billy Budd, so good on him. And he was a finalist for uh, the Cardiff Singer of the World last season. And mm. Janine DeBeek, uh, a soprano that I praised in our Best of 2018 uh, episode a couple weeks ago, uh, she'll be singing Susanna in The Marriage of Figaro. So if you're interested in hearing about her, go go see that. There's a, there's a good bit of overlap in the in what singers are doing in both of their seasons. Uh, Chris, Christian Van Horn, Richard Tucker oh, yeah. winner, yeah. appears in both seasons. The 
um, soprano Liana Harutunian, I think yeah. is how you say it. She's Louisa Miller for she, us, right? No, she, uh, that's Sto- Krasimir Stoyanova okay. is doing Louisa Miller. She's oh. one of the butterflies, yeah. but she's singing Manon Lescaut. Have you heard her before? I haven't, but she's one of those people who always pops up. Yeah, as she's got a hard to pronounce name. I'm about to yeah, say, I don't know her. She's got to work on that one. So. I, recognize her, I recognize her name. It's we just figured out <laughs> how to say Yannick Nezes again. Yeah. <laughs> and thank God, just in time. Uh, <laughs> well, and speaking of which, we probably got to move on to the next uh, segment here. Faulty Systems is an annual program at Thompson Street Opera Company in which activists and artists come together to present on underrepresented communities or ideas through music, speech, poetry, dance, and other mediums. More on that next on Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera, on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Our guest live in studio tonight is Alexandra Enyart. Alex serves as music director for Thompson Street Opera Company, where she chartered Faulty Systems, an annual program in which activists and artists come together to present on underrepresented communities or ideas through their various art forms. Alex, thanks again for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. So take us through exactly what Faulty Systems is. So I found the best way to describe Faulty Systems is really to talk about how it started. And it started a few years ago um, as a result of the Middle Eastern immigration ban. And so all of this was happening um, at this time. There were a lot of things going on. And we kind of had this need to come together as a community in this moment. And then on a personal note, at that moment, that was when I was coming out as transgender. Hmm. And so I was coming into this, like, larger world, one that I, I realized how much I didn't know when I went from being white, cis presenting male and then into a trans woman and and so i got together with a couple of my friends and we started working on this project where we would put together basically a rally with music and with the arts and Hmm. that was the whole concept is so and it was what we wanted to make sure we did was it wasn't just like one a, a like a celebration of stories or things like that it is partly a celebration but it is also significant that it is about taking time to say what is still to be done what do we still need to be doing? And, and it's a, a really important learning opportunity for myself as well. I mean, hearing these different stories, we've had Kwame Rose came in, which you might know from uh, Baltimore Rising on HBO, sure. and came and talked to us about mm-hmm. what that was like. And then, um, you know, we had the one of the first years we did um, a piece called 62 Before, During, After, which was um, a piece about school shootings, and it, it used... Um, N- notes from actual actual school shooters 
as the oh. text that was set um, through the piece. <laughs> and it was an incredibly moving piece. Um, and so having those, we, we, it's just a broad variety of things, and you never know exactly what it's going to be. This year's Faulty Systems, the concept is breaking out of a forced narrative. And the idea is all the times that you're said you have to be or you must be or you must do or any of those things where there's this idea that someone is something or they have to be or, or anything like that. And how do we kind of look at that and how do we avoid doing that and how do we avoid putting people in boxes and boxing ourselves in? Um, so I'm really excited about um, the pieces that are going to be on the show um, this year that we're presenting musically, um, Agony by Colin Murphy is, mm. um, I think you would find it the very cutting edge of what opera can be. It's three performers, a table, a whole bunch of cups, bells, toy piano, <laughs> everything about That's it. That's all is you just, need. It's really an excellent, excellent piece. It's an episode of Law and Order, just like <laughs> spoken as fast as it can be. And as they're speaking it, they're ripping up the script. So <laughs> it's a really different piece. Um, and then the other is um, Sean Ellis Hussey, uh, For the Sake of a Narrative Closure. Um, which features six sopranos and electronics mm. and is a look on opera itself. And so it's six sopranos talking about their, they all play different uh, opera archetypes like the board member or the artistic director sure. and things okay. like this. Gotcha. And then they come in and share their experiences. And, and at the end, it ends with the question, what is opera to you? And we're hoping that it ends with, and the piece goes without really applause, just into discussion. And mm. so everyone there, you know, because the, huh. this as a concert and as a, is a, is a production is less about come see a show, more about share your experience, share with us, let's all come together and, and, and see what, what we're thinking and what's going on. Now, of course, uh, you're, you're a conductor, so mm -hmm. you have uh, uh, obviously experience getting up and sort of controlling the orchestra, sort of controlling uh, what's going on. How do you incorporate that as a conductor in, in this sort of freer sort of uh, method of expression and these sort of more uh, avant-garde sense, for want of a better phrase? Yeah, well, if what's super fun about it is that I get to step away mm. in a lot. So for Take Agony... a little break. Yeah, for <laughs> For Agony, I'm actually, I'm not conducting that piece. Um, they're just, it's, uh, they're doing it all on their own. Uh, narrative Closure, I am conducting, but I'm just, you know, I'm in a corner. I'm just really there. Um, but, you know, conducting is always a collaborative project anyway. By the time you're in performance, it's not so much like, you know, our, a conductor's performance is rehearsal. So if you are performing at the performance, like, really trying to get people to do sure, specific right. things, it, it's a little late. I mean, by that point... It, you really need to have set up a foundation so that they can feel secure and they know that you've been with them enough of the time that they trust you in the moment that you, you can do whatever they need. Because, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a position with a lot of... It really is a position that's based on trust and collaboration, in my opinion. And, and that's why it's always such a huge honor and a privilege to be conducting anyone is that it is a huge musical talent no matter that is put in front of you, doing something that you yourself cannot do and, and trusting that you will be there as basically like, I think of it as like a, a, a back shield in a way, someone who is not working as hard so that mm. you can reliably say what's going on. And it's, it takes honesty and it takes trust. And if you don't have that, then you don't have it. So I think with this particular production, what really matters is helping to create a space but more importantly stepping away from the space if it, when it's actually happening and saying this is really i'm totally an equal participant i'm 
I'm not like the leader or the boss. Sure. So, so this is a, I'm sorry. This is a Thompson Street Opera Company production. Yes, it is. And you recently conducted for them uh, the um, when Adonis calls. Uh, that was Thompson Street, correct? Yes, that was. Which was another uh, queer-themed opera. And then you did Patience and Sarah for a, another storefront Chicago-based opera company called um, Third Eye Theater Ensemble. Yes. And you conducted as one for Chicago Fringe Opera. So you're, so you're sort of become like the queer conductor. <laughs> I have. And I thought about that because I was like, you know, is this a, is this a label that I'm giving myself? But, you know, I think that after I did S1, Laura Kaminsky and I had a chance to talk. And she told me that the pieces that have stuck with her throughout her life are the pieces that were socially motivated to do something. And so I think I've, I really have held on to that statement. And having done as one is so important. Doing Patience and Sarah, I, I mean, I just, I loved working on those projects. When Adonis Calls was amazing to be in. All of it telling a story that really has a relevance to an audience that's about to sit down really matters a lot. And with, with Storefront is, I mean, um, it's, it's small. So the audience is small. So one thing that I think is really important um, when thinking about what can I do with the position that I have, what can I do to make a difference where I am, we can target and like look for what pieces can we promote? What can we do differently? How can we make an influence in the world of opera um, you know, and, and have something that really matters. And I think that a piece like When Adonis Calls, where we did the second performance, and this year Thompson Street is doing all second performances, you know, it doesn't mm. have the same excitement, glory perhaps in some ways as doing all world premieres, but I think that uh, based on talking to composers, it's in a way even more important. And I'm really, I feel like taking our time to be searching out those second performances finding pieces and saying we want to support this and how can we help you get this into the next level and and i'm hoping that you'll see a lot more of when adonis calls i'm hoping that you see more of patience and sarah and i'm if based on current trends i would imagine we'll see more of as one sure well, you're listening to uh, Opera Box Score on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. A recent article in the New York Times by classical music editor, editor Zachary Wolf opened with the lines, quote, the Met Opera has a gay conductor, yes, that matters, end quote. Uh, and that's talking about how, uh, how even though uh, having um, LGBT, LGBT people in the arts is not necessarily... Uh, uh, is not, uh, newsworthy. The, not necessarily <laughs> newsworthy, <laughs> uh, but having someone in as high-profile a position as Yannick Nizet-Sagan uh, at the Metropolitan Opera is significant. Uh, and of course, uh, as a, uh, uh, an LGBT, a member of the LGBT community yourself, who is also a conductor, um, did you find that there was any, um, did, did it resonate with you at all as a, as a sort of a position of responsibility as far as that goes? Well, definitely. I, I had seen uh, his video before with um, Dana Damrau, um, yes. which was, well, uh, what's it called? It's... Um, the New Met. New Traviata. New Traviata for the Met. Yes. The Met. Uh, and I, you know, I loved seeing that. And that was before I knew that he was LGBT. And I, I just loved seeing that sense of collaboration and that sense of working together and, and just the whole attitude that he has going about it. And then when I also saw that he was... 
uh, gay in this article, I, I really felt uh, a connection to that, and I, I really appreciated it. And one of the things I had, I was with uh, Chicago Sinfonietta through their Project Inclusion uh, at the MLK concert, um, and one of the conductors that night, a, a former Project Inclusion alum, Kellen Gray, said, it's really hard to be what you never get to see. And I think it's really important that even though this is maybe not you know, it, it, there's an argument that it's not noteworthy, but I think it is to see someone who's comfortable and happy in his sexuality. Because we, mm. you know, so many mm -hmm. of the older stories, they just, they aren't, they aren't like that. There are certainly gay conductors, there are certainly, but there, it's either under the rug and, and part of it is, you know, the writing at the time and all of how things, things were and how things are. But I think that this is a really significant moment and especially for, when, when there are demographics, um, you know, both within the LGBT community and then people of color and things like that, where the suicide rates and the homicide rates are higher, I think showing that there are dreams, people are making it, and you can make it, really matters. And, and I think mm. we need more and more of that, if it's, even if it's just a, um, so much anymore in our lives, what we can Google search matters deeply to us and I remember when I was coming out and could not find a transgender conductor really quickly besides really? Angela Morley I learned about mm -hmm. now um, you know and I would recommend anyone look up Angela Morley she's excellent she you've definitely heard her work before if you've seen Star Wars um, she oh arranged, really <laughs> yeah so she arranged um, the famous moment use the force Luke in episode oh. four she arranged huh. that um, <laughs> so you know she did a ton of high high profile things but um you know, I think that part of it was that she could be successful and be trans. She was behind a screen and she was working, um, you know, out out of the public eye in a lot of ways. And and I think that's kind of kind of the thing is how do we get people to be seen? And I think that this is a great way, not only with Met, but with Philadelphia Orchestra, um, where Yannick is and, and to have all of this just public and open. And, and there it is. Anyone can find it. I, I definitely agree with you that it's more than just a puff piece, which, you know, at, at face sure. value, you could you could call it that. But I I think that undersells just how rapidly this kind the how rapidly attitudes have been changing. I mean, if you go back and consume any media from the 90s, the kinds of things that you would say <laughs> as jokes on an episode of Friends Oof. are not funny. They, I mean, they, and they weren't then, but people laughed at them. Mm -hmm. And it, the just the, how much things have changed, and definitely not sitting here patting ourselves on the back because there's so far to go. But the fact that it is almost normal now to to be an openly gay person in the arts, you you forget that even ten years ago, that was not. Neither of the major political parties had that had equality marriage rights on their platform. Like it has sure. been really rapid that that the dominoes have started falling recently. Yeah, and that was uh, something, uh, there was a uh, there was actually a response to the New York Times article for Slate Magazine, and all these links will be on our website. Um, George, if you're listening, please put them on the website for us, because I don't know how to do that. Uh, but <laughs> there was a Slate response which uh, kind of took a rather, um, shall we say, antagonistic view of the New York Times specifically uh, in publishing this uh, article about uh, Nazé Sagan. Um, uh, saying essentially it was uh, sort of overlooking the fact that the Times had contributed to the era of uh, oppression of uh, gay musicians, pointing out uh, people like Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, where uh, their uh, 
where anything other than a heteronormative sort of relationship was either ignored or swept under the rug or um, or seemed to be hidden, which had a little bit of backlash. Talked about as like phases in their life. You know? Right, exactly. Um, which actually prompted a, another one a response from uh, Anne Majette, uh, who. Um, uh, who works for uh, the the Washington Post? The Washington She's Post, yes. Credit. Yeah. Um, and uh, she uh, she said um, she says, "quote What were we supposed to do? Deny the wishes of the musicians in question question when writing our profiles, uh, referencing uh, you know not wanting to out someone as." Um, LGBT uh, without their permission. Uh, uh, we can't pretend that the mores of today were the mores of 15 to 20 years ago, uh, end quote. Um, but there is certainly, uh, it is certainly unusual, I think, to kind of, as, as Matt said, to, to see this shift happen. Um, and, and I think that uh, the part of the reason I find Anne Majette's response to the response interesting is that it kind of yeah. highlights for me that what is running through this isn't really about the content of the original article from the from the New York Times about sure. this again but it's really a lot about new media taking a look at old media and and it's kind of a proxy for it, it's a proxy for that in in terms of the the fault lines there yeah absolutely but there there is something to be said i think for the notion that uh, i mean you said it, you said it's more than a fluff piece but in terms of like the way it's written it it really is sort of like one of those formulaic things that you write that that it's so positive it's so cute even it it talks about like you know uh first dates with uh with uh with his partner um i forget his name Uh, uh, you can look at the article i'm sorry (laughs) Um, but you know it it is very much it it feels so normal it feels so warm and cozy that we need a lot more of that and it's a shame that we only get this article like once every who knows when you know we need to normalize these all the time and normalize everything else because we're not making that much progress. Like this is progress and it's fantastic, but people are still, you know, skeezed out by things that aren't heteronormative. Right. Know? And we have to go even further. I mean, right. just being, where where just is where is the New York like Times first, puff piece like for for Alex? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we still have a, a ways to go. Um, I mean, look at the sports world. We're supposed to be like a format in a sports radio I'm like sure look at how many i mean professional tennis come on you got to tell me that there are not more gay people and <laughs> look at their outfits you know? <laughs> it's all the shorts yeah uh, yeah it's it's and, it, and of course it is extraordinary because you know if you're if you're in the arts at all you know you you see people lgbt people people of color all the time but john q audience member doesn't necessarily know about those things well i have to say that it, it has also to do with the administrations of these uh, organizations protecting mm. their high-end donors from having to experience anything sure. that makes them uncomfortable, you know? Especially since donors tend to be older, more conservative. And white. Yeah. And white. <laughs> <laughs> the big three. Yeah. So we just need more uh, people of color and LGBTQ people listening to opera and donating to opera, right. supporting the arts. You're out there. Uh, Alex, and not to put you too much on the spot, but what, what do you think opera companies should be doing to promote these sorts of viewpoints specifically i mean obviously you have uh programs like yours uh, at thompson street opera but what, what could like a a big sort of um uh, established company like the met do to further this cause well i the the biggest thing is giving people a spotlight and giving people the the chance to get up and and 
tell that story and share that story and finding ways to get that programmed. Um, the first, uh, they made a small but important step when uh, they brought Sariaho, Le Mort Luan, sure. on. Um, I think that was two years ago, but something like that. I believe so. Yeah. About the that, first yeah. time, it was so long. So, it's something like 100 years, something ridiculous bef uh, between women composers. And that was the first full length. The, the only other women composer was uh, Ethel Smith. Oh, well, that's wonderful also. She actually, um, I believe that she is also LGBT. Um, I think she is, yes. Yeah, but she also, um, it was a one act before something else is my understanding. Um, oh, I don't know about that one. Yeah, so I'd, I'd have to look more into that to make sure. But um, I, my understanding is that Le Mort Le was the first full-length only hmm. women moment. And and so um, getting those stories, you know, we also see Susanna Malki um, conducting. Sure. Um, which is fantastic and, and getting, um, you know, and really creating an outlet for that. I think that things are going in the right direction. It is going to take a lot of training programs, I think, to encourage the... Because it's, it's a systematic problem also in, in terms of the education. How do we get uh, people with different backgrounds to the opportunities that they need for education to really be writing these, these big hits and really be sharing mm. these big hits and really doing these big things? Um, and I think that we just need to, to think about how we can help it, you know, at earlier levels so that we can build into that and we can see more and more of those people really growing into the big companies. But um, I don't have an answer for how we fix it suddenly. I mean, the, sure. the fastest thing that we can do, in my opinion, is to start making sure that every season we're working further and further to make our selections the the demographics should match hypothetically the demographics of the community and sure. so if we can if we can bring what our community looks like into our opera hall into our concert hall into anywhere i think that that would be the best way to go about it but it's going to be a long a long process and a lot of work and everyone is going to have to commit to doing it Baby steps, one step at a time. <laughs> Conductor Gustavo Dudamel gets a back rub from composer John Williams. That's next on Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Stuart Murphy, the for- former TV exec- executive who joined English National Opera as its chief executive last spring, has said, quote, that opera is shockingly white, overly traditional, and too slow to change. He made that assessment as he announced new measures to tackle its lack of diversity. That includes positive action to recruit at least four chorus members from a black, Asian, and ethnic minority background. L.A. Opera has also announced its 2019-2020 season, which includes the artist-in-residence Matthew O'Coin's world premiere of Eurydice, Barry Kosky's new production of Puccini's La Boheme, and composer Du Yun's Pulitzer Prize-winning opera Angel's Bone. Calgary Opera has unveiled plans for a new $40 million community arts center to be situated on a parcel of land donated by the Calgary Stampede. The partnership between the two companies is expected to provide both organizations the opportunity to effectively move beyond their traditional borders to connect with a wider base of Calgarians, said a recent media announcement. Wichita Grand Opera has appointed Alan Held as its artistic director, effective immediately. Held, 59, has sung leading roles at all the world's major opera houses. Composer John Williams was there to see conductor Gustavo Dudamel honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Williams called him, quote, inexplicable, a genius and a wizard. Over to the disabled list, Ryan Opera Center soprano Anne Toomey will portray Musetta in the final three performances of Puccini's La Boheme, replacing Danielle Denise, who is unwell. Baritone Marish Quichen has canceled his appearance in Bizet's Pearl Fishers in Houston due to personal circumstances. Alexander Birch Elliott, who replaced Marius at the Met to great reviews, will step in once more. Exit stage right, Wilma Lipp, one of Vienna State Opera's Golden Age Mozart singers. A student of Mahler's discovery, Anna Bar Mildenberg, Lipp made her Vienna debut as Rosina in 1943. And on this day, January 28th, it was the premiere of Donizetti's Zoraida di Granata at the Teatro Argentina, Argentina in Rome in 1822. Italian-American bass Ezio Flagello was born in 1931, and in 1996, Venice's Teatro de la Fenice was destroyed in a fire. And that is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is opera box score and of course you can call us on the air and get your voice heard 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio we want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight 847-866-9687 or you can tweet us at opera box score i've always thought it was hilarious that an opera house called the phoenix burned down in a fire and then rose up from the ashes (laughs) but fun fact i had a teacher in college who was actually there on the day it burned uh and apparently uh afterward all the uh venetians gathered around with a candlelight vigil because i guess it was already burned down no need to worry about the fire hazard uh and they all sang va pensiero together which is the the only way to uh, commemorate the burning of an opera house <laughs> like that? Um, but uh, yeah, so um, so, <laughs> so speaking of diversity, um, English National Opera wants to get more BAME. BAME for yes. its <laughs> black uh, uh, Asian Amer- Asian not Asian American because it's yeah. in England Asian. Um, they're hyphenating others. it BAME. I don't understand where they get BAME. Ethnic my, minority. Yeah. Uh, minority ethnic? Oh, it's like BAM. Yeah. This, this is an English yeah. thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do think that it's kind of uh, funny that, um, that uh, 
well, well, it's it's not just uh, the, what's highlighted in the article is there are four chorus members from a black Asian. I'm like four. That doesn't seem like a lot, but they're also announcing three annual uh, and paid ENO director of observerships, which offers um, BAME directors the chance to work alongside um, sort of the more well-established directors. So that is, uh, I think, a little bit more significant than perhaps four people in the chorus. So, I mean, yeah. I, I'm as much as I, mean, I hate this type of. Acronym and Bame. Like, so obvious I hate it. Uh-huh. That's all about inclusion. <laughs> but I do think that we have to actively correct a problem. Oh, we and do. You may not get like the person who, in a blind audition, is like, yes, that's the voice. You might end up with some people that are a little rough around the edge. You got to like big up a little bit, you know? Right. But they need they need to see themselves on stage. They need the opportunity. They need to be the model for the next generation, you know? And I'm not just not saying that there aren't great BAME singers out there so like that, but, you know, maybe in wherever English National Opera is. I guess that's in Europe somewhere? It's in England, I okay. think. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you could <Yeah>. say. <laughs> maybe there are less BAMEs out there. You know? Well, it's an issue everywhere. I mean, in Chicago, for the storefront scene, I listened to um, days of auditions with Third Eye and with Thompson Street and otherwise. And in terms of singers of color, uh, I would say... The number is incredibly small in terms mm. of the hours that I heard at, at the le- at this le- at the storefront level. Um, so, I think it's I think any initiative to do something like that and really really help singers of color I, I think is really very vital. I don't I I don't disagree with you. I think that that's the case. But I also think that the type of operas that storefront operas are putting on maybe don't appeal to singers of color they're not seeking out those opportunities you know mm-hmm. hmm that's a thought i don't know yeah. i'm i'm yeah, I'm, I'm neither a singer that. nor a person of color <laughs> 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 uh well uh moving on to um what seems like the opposite of chicago right now los angeles um uh well two things obviously la has uh released their uh season uh announcement but also um uh, Gustavo Dudamel has his uh, Hollywood Star of Fame, which I think is a little bit more important. He's a wizard. He is an inexplicable <laughs> genius yeah. wizard, which is everything yeah, I hair, want to be in sure. life. Uh, but, but in more serious news, you're definitely inexplicable. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's one out of three. My, my taste in uh, early 20th century opera is certainly an inexplicable. However, uh, the season for LA Opera, um, they've got uh, a few things going on. I think the big one is probably going to be Angel's Bone. Um, which I heard a little bit of, but I don't know really anything about. Uh, do you guys know that one at all? No. That's a remount, isn't it? That's, that's I, I that think so. Yeah. Opera? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah, that's, that's no, it's not Tandon. Do no, it's not yeah, Do Do Yan, not Tandon. Oh, mm-hmm. is that that was an opera, right? The Bone Collector, right? I heard something mm-hmm. about a bone. There, there is a bone. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We're all on the same page. There's, but there's bones involved. So many bone operas. <laughs> Angel's bone. I, I listened to bits of it. I think it's. I, I, you know, you can find it on Spotify. I think it's super interesting, um, listening to it. It is. It is, a, such a, a, a tragic story. It's, it's a story of, um, two angels, falling into a couple's yard. Uh, the couple, um takes care and helps the angels and works on healing them and then they turn for the worse they clip their wings and it becomes uh, and start selling them out and it becomes a big story um about human trafficking and mm. it's it's a really hard way to do it's got um all the way from like renaissance choral sounds to right now contemporary punk 
sounds and these electronics and it I, the work is to me absolutely fascinating i think it's incredibly interesting a really hard show maybe to watch um i mean i was very moved just listening to the parts that i heard um i would say it, it definitely is something that you would need to um think about content wise as an audience member and and make sure that you're comfortable with everything you're about to experience doing that being in that piece but i think the experience the experience at least that i had just listening was quite strong so i would i would love to see it on stage and i think it's fantastic that they're doing it and it, it premiered in 2016 at the prototype festival i was about to say yeah, that's let's right. be clear that and also that this is not a main stage presentation this right is mm -hmm. this is another situation kind of like the lyric where they're kind of taking the the, the weirdest one <laughs> in, in their rep and putting it on off stage which you know is a legitimate strategy um, well in, in it Beyond strategy, though, I think that in some ways it serves the work to do it in a True. more intimate space. I mean, can you imagine being in the back row of Upper Balcony at Lyric and watching <laughs> a four-person opera that was yeah. about intensely intimate that is true. human mm -hmm. interactions like you you wouldn't really get all, like it doesn't do any service to the work to present it that that is that is true true and fair um but i do want to draw the contrast between angel's bone and a lot of the main stage productions like boem magic flute <laughs> not Sedi figaro you know the, uh, roberto devereux is a little more interesting peleas and Mezalon, i like you, roberto devereux kind of coming out of left field I'm and they're not happy. even doing with sandra what radonofsky <laughs> <laughs> what are you even doing if you don't have radonofsky on there yeah. <laughs> they're also doing peleas with kate Lindsay. i'm a huge right kate Lindsay right fan. Mm -hmm. yeah she's great and uh, they're, they're also doing, doing light in the piazza with Renee oh, Fleming. Oh, right, right, of course. Well, in, in the role that Renee. was premiered by uh, Victoria Clark, the mother role. So is that, so you were talking about Carolina Change and... That's Adam, uh, Light in the Piazza's Adam Gattel. Okay, who, so I don't know this music. Is it like, am I going to like it? It's or? very lush. And <laughs> yeah. well, he's Richard Rogers' grandson. Aww. And he actually, I believe, was a, uh, was a boy soprano when he was younger. Mm. And so he grew up def steeped in like both American musical theater and... Hmm. And opera. I'm trying to remember exactly which um he he one of the one of the boy soprano roles that isn't a mall. He he that's sang it, as a one. as a young boy. Okay, like uh Turn of the Screw. That's the only other one. You 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 hit the uh, only Enold two. in oh, Peleus and Melisande. Mm. Oh, of course. Which also is also which is in um which is in LA Opera's season as well yeah. this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the other sort of interesting one to me is the uh, Eurydice um, by um, Matthew O'Coin. I believe that is a premiere, a world with, premiere. With Daniel Denise. Hope yeah. Better by then. <laughs> Get well soon, uh, Danielle. Yeah, I think that that one's uh, I, I, this this season is kind of weird to me because it's got a couple like two really sort of radical ones two kind of out of left field ones and the rest is just kind of meh. they've got their anchors all, all three yeah. of the seasons that we're talking about this the the tonight have like three operas that are your anchors yeah i, I do think they've all been <laughs> sort of very smartly constructed and i think you often see this especially with uh with opera you know larger opera companies that are sort of um announcing their seasons earlier on you know you know that they've spent a lot of time sort of figuring out what the the sort of the, the balance is in terms of um, interesting and crowd pleasing and war horses yeah, and, and that used to be part of the 
part of the argument in favor of a subscription series because right. you could get people to come to all of them theoretically. So as that you know goes by the wayside of of how we're attracting people to come to these operas, it, I think it's going to be. I, I don't think we're that far away from a paradigm shift in the way that these opera companies are are working out their seasons. Hopefully for the better, but hopefully <laughs> only if we work. At Knock that. on yeah. wood. Let gonna, me tell you. This is going to sound very inappropriate, especially in light okay, of the conversation for today. But there are, is a bit of stunt casting in the Roberto Devereaux. Um, Alice Coote is playing a woman. <laughs> Whoa. I'm serious. Though, she but, hardly ever does yeah, that. I mean, I mean she almost always gets hired yeah. for pants rolls. That's re it's really true. <laughs> She's playing the Duchess of Nottingham, Sarah. So. Yeah. Well, congratulations to her on uh, on uh, <laughs> on uh, on uh, changing from the changing out of the pants and into a skirt. I guess yeah. is the uh, skirt roll does not seem as comfortable of a phrase to say out loud. <laughs> I'm going to move on. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. That's right. It's almost time to wrap things up here. Does anyone have a good call for us? Um, I want to just shout out to our friend Rachel willis Sorensen, who probably just completed the dress rehearsal today for Don Giovanni. Uh, she goes on stage at the Met on January 30th as Donna Anna. How about you, Matt? You got anything for us? I know that I, from, from my friends on the Instagrams, I saw that Chicago Opera Theater's production of Scarlet Ibis started rehearsals today, and that will open on February 16th. we yeah. got a little ways to go, but yay for new opera. And also, my good call is Electra. It's coming up so soon, I can't actually see it this weekend because I'm seeing it uh, by myself on Valentine's Day, which is how <laughs> my love life is going right now. Uh, but that is okay. Alex? Do you, you got anything for us, Alex? Well, I would say what I'm most excited for, it's a little farther out, but I'm really, mm. really looking forward to Moby Dick when yeah. that comes to COT. I'm really looking forward to seeing that production put up. Lots of good stuff coming up. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not the John Williams with the Hollywood star. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Be sure to leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Alex Enyart, and co-host, Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera all bundled up. Yikes, January ain't even over yet, y'all. We're back on Monday, February 4th at 9 p.m. Central. Plus, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes then. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. Can I lie to her again?